City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. And you're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55am, maybe on 3cr.org.au. The time is 9.07. It's Wednesday morning, and if it's not, someone's going to come and kick us out of the studio soon, yeah, I assume. Different and show. Yeah, we uh, first of all heard from Horror Show featuring Thelma Plum with their song Any Other Name, obviously uh, dedicated to Adam Goods. And um, just then was something for Kate with electricity, bringing in... Another Energy Week. Very good. And it is an Energy Week on City Limits. So that was Corey Green. I'm Kevin Healy. And um, today we're going to have our guest in the last half of the show is going to be uh, Daniel Spencer. Dan Spencer, who's uh, a spokesperson for the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and pretty appropriate today, I would have thought. And that's why we've got them, of course, um, on today, uh, Corey, because uh, that's the generation that's going to... Mm-hmm. It's going to feel the effects of all these decisions currently being made by government about climate change, etc., or non-decisions, one might say, and we'll find out whether they feel impressed with what, what the government decided or not, but we'll, uh, we'll get to that. But certainly, uh, it's an important issue, and uh, we'll see how it goes. But um, Yeah, well, you yeah. only had 30 or 40 years to fix the problem. That's right. Look, I'm going to pour a cup of tea. Do you want a cup of tea, or are you back in it? No, mm, no, no, so no, already, no, I've, no. Had, I've had two coffees. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm yeah. almost awake. I had a pot at home preparing for this, so this is my second pot now. There we are, just poured it. I hope that pot probably wasn't as loud as it should have been, but sorry about that. Okay. Anyway, mm-hmm. you only had 30, 40 years to fix the problem. Like, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, it's but easy. you've chosen, what, <laughs> profits instead? Well, of course, and we'll, we'll get round to that a little later, but that's the case. And I thought, interesting this morning on um, the Brecky show, Squirrel, who was doing it this morning, um, Regan must have been away somewhere or ill or something, whatever. But anyway, um, she made an important point because yesterday, of course, we saw also Abbott play one of his political tricks on his own on his own members yesterday mm. um, by insisting the National Party be in on the Liberal Party room discussion about uh, same-sex marriage, <laughs> which guaranteed that he won the debate. Uh, but she made the point, and it's it's an interesting. I think it's a valid point that. By having the papers this morning talk about the way he played that and got his way. Now, this might rebound on him in the long term politically, who knows? But it also kept the very ordinary decision on climate change off the front pages and further back in terms of being discussed and attacked. So it was a very clever ruse in that sense as well. And she made the point that as a person who lives in a same-sex relationship, is it a choice between not being married, not breathing, that sort of thing? You know, do you make those sort of choices? And um, Yeah, climate so. change is certainly the issue to end all issues. Indeed. And when we get on to our guest, I might raise a point you raised yesterday about have we reached the tipping point or not? And indeed, I think you're saying rather not a question, but you think we have. Mm. Yeah, and I think, well, that's one we always raise in these discussions and... Um, Interesting to see what uh, what Dan feels, Daniel feels, and um, that uh, Dan that Spencer? group. Dan, Dan Spencer, yes, Daniel Spencer's name. He's in Adelaide, so we'll um, we're ringing him about half past nine or so to our time, but it'll be about nine o'clock their time. Uh, 
Well, I, I see their premier wants to change that. So we're going to go back in time. That's well. The premier wants to um, wants them to link up with with Eastern Standard Time or whatever we are. Are we Eastern Standard Time? Whatever we are. Yeah. Um, and um, so that, mainly for their business, of course. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting aspect on 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 the on the uh, same sex marriage is you, uh, Corey. Mm-hmm. The the Canberra Airport. Did you notice that story? Uh, the the owner of Canberra Airport, who's a very rich man, he's, uh, he's est- his value is estimated at $617 million in the BRW rich list. Oh, yeah. The owner of Canberra Airport. But he, he last weekend he attended his son's wedding to a same-sex partner in New Zealand because they had to go to New Zealand to get married. Uh-huh. Uh, and because this bloke, his name's Terry Snow, this rich lister bloke, <coughs> and his son uh, had a cross, etc., and he's going. He's going at night to have rainbow colours across the Canberra airport, and he was having rainbow colours, I think, in some way during the day um, because of though the, the the government was going to be debating it uh, to push the cause, which I found really interesting. Um, so night flights into Canberra will be greeted by an airport aglow with the colours of the rainbow and a very public show of support for gay marriage. And it, he makes the point, and he goes on to say that you know, their marriage was just a simple ceremony where two blokes were able to commit to love and support each other with the full support of their families in the state. I can tell you from personal experience that their marriage did not devalue my marriage with my wife, and it did not have any negative effect on my family or the people of New Zealand. Uh, so on he goes. So, <laughs> there you go. So there's a businessman uh, coming out with doing something decent. I think that um, the rainbow is very interesting symbol for queer rights because uh, because of its place in Christian mythology. So Christians obviously being, you know, a group of people who historically and at the moment, you know, don't want queer people to have rights. But, uh, you know, are you aware of the, the story of, of the rainbow? Um, I know the rainbow serpents are features in, in, in indigenous culture. What's the rainbow? I, I'm, my having gone nine years to a Catholic college, I got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, basically, um, so God created the world. You know, theoretically, this Christian story, whatever. God created the world, and then um, you know there was a whole Garden of Eden issue, and then so. People had oh, of free course, will. The Noah's Ark. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, that's, yes. That's, yes of I was, course. I was getting to it. I was okay, getting to okay, it. Okay, right. Yeah. So Go people on. had free will, um, and then they pissed off God with all their free will, and so God just around them all, except for Noah and his ark. And then right at the end of that, he uh, put the rainbow in the sky as a as a covenant not to uh, interfere with people's free will again. So if you're a Christian, you would think that you could take that covenant and and apply it to uh, queer rights mm, that's yeah. right and, and and in terms of the free will and sort of it's always I said that means the end of reign um, mm. we're using free will again I use we very loosely in this sense but we we as the human race at the moment are using free will to destroy the planet anyway so anyway. <laughs> yeah well <laughs> you know I, I think I think God you know more or less if you uh, actually have read the Christian Bible, probably, you know, would no longer drown or smite or set on fire all the queers. So I no, think no. And, uh, he had to change your heart on that one. I can't imagine how I could have possibly forgotten about the rainbow and Noah's Ark, but I did. Um, the, another terrible story in the past week or so was this young asylum seeker in um, Western Australia who died ostensibly of a heart attack, but... Uh, He'd come here, been here for a number of years. He'd landed um, 
and been at Christmas Island for a long time. He was in South Australia, died of a heart attack, but his body was immediately removed. The government's saying nothing. It's the usual story. We're not hearing many details of it. He hoped to bring his wife and kids here. They're, they're, they're in India illegally there as well as we say illegally here, although that's a big question mark because we, we would argue these people are all legal anyway. Mm. But yeah, just another terrible story of an asylum seeker and the unfortunately the, the secrecy that surrounds whatever happens to these people and... Uh, an Afghan bloke who died, and we're sending another. We're sending them back. Of course, another Afghan bloke is on the verge of being sent back. Um, Afghan Afghanistan itself refused to accept him last week, but they're negotiating. Uh, and when you think about it, I mean, the place is in turmoil. Apparently, they had the biggest death rate over a weekend for you know last weekend, the biggest death rate for a long time in terms of bombs and so-called terrorism over there. And yet, we're sending people back to that, and that all erupted because we invaded it in the first place. I mean, the, the immorality just goes on and on, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. They so, send the people back to die somewhere else policy. Yeah. Um, there was also a story about need to um, spell out what added ingredients are in, in various um, foods. And in the middle of all this, Kellogg's came out last week. I don't know if you saw, did you see that night? Well, Kellogg's came out and said they're going to, they're no longer going to put artificial flavours and colourings in their cereals. And I, I, in fact, made the point on the week that was that all you get now is an empty box. <laughs> um, but then also made the further point that, of course, the empty box is a lot healthier than what you get now. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and uh, on a on a more sombre note, although what's more sombre than eating that crap? Um, the Thody, David Thody, who's the former head of Telstra, uh, and his background is purely as a businessman. He has no scientific background or whatever. 22-year career with IBM in senior marketing and sales, but that's nothing to do with the science of the whole thing. They've, they've just made him head of the CSIRO. Oh, good. And I must admit... I see some sort of threat in this. Why would you put a businessman there when the government is in fact saying, McFarlane, that minister bloke who announced the appointment, said it's a bit unfair to David. This is asking him about uh, uh, it makes one third of its revenue from from business, to dealing with business with, the, with whatever science it develops and the shortfalls funded by government. And he was asked about it and McFarlane stepped in and said it's a bit unfair to David because he hasn't actually seen the books CSIRO currently covers about one third of its budget. It would be good for their for both industry and science and CSIRO if they were able to increase that. Um, and um, there's a number of comments from the uh, staff association talking about the need they're, they're suffering from heavy cuts to funding anyway. And my, I would suspect Fody's appointment may well be part of a move to to um, privatise it in all sorts of ways, or, or make it, or, or force it to uh, to give, you know, to, to involve, get him more involved with business rather than do pure science, etc. But I can see all sorts of threats in putting someone who isn't even a scientist in charge of your biggest science body. Hmm. It's like there's there's nothing left in the world more important than profits. Exactly. Exactly. Well, <laughs> not even uh, innovation on. or. Spot on. Pure science. Now, I'm wondering whether or not, um, if they're all about saving the money, whether or not they're going to give the, C- the head of the CSIRO one of those, you know, crazy million-dollar-a-year uh, pays or salaries. Uh, or, doesn't, or is he give gonna he, be... doesn't give his salary. But given what he would have been earning at Telstra and BHP, wherever I said it was, or oh, it was um, IBM, wasn't it? Um, I imagine he'd get a fair bit. 
Mm. Or you demand a fair bit, a man of that sort of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, rich, <laughs> interesting. Uh, well, you aren't I, talking about me then? Uh, well, I could. Uh, I'm not sure. I Well, <laughs> you're rich in many ways, <laughs> Corey. <laughs> in many more ways than, say, Gina Reinhardt or Jamie Packer, mm-hmm. the two I'm about to talk about who are probably in the top two or three of our, or she's the top, and I think he's in the top two or three of our very richest of rich uh, sponges. I'm sorry, uh, wonderful people who do great things for this society. Um, Cross page two and three of the Herald Sun one day last week, um, I think it was Thursday or Friday, I'll have a look here, a bit of a rattle there, Thursday. Um, on one side, on P2, record as Packer Mansion top 60 million, well, in fact, it went for 70 the wonderful home that he uh, he tore mansion down and built a new one for him and uh, Erica, but he and Erica are no longer together, so he's flogged it off. So seventy million to the kick for the old Jamie. On the other side, on P three across the across the bottom, on the other on the right hand side, billionaire Gina Reinhardt could become the nation's most significant um, wagyu beef producer after outlaying twelve million on a dozen farms in Queensland, and it goes on about how she plans to do that now. Do you reckon Whether, she's doing that because cattle's, cattle don't demand a high wage? She's, well, they probably work for less than $2 a day. Happy, happy. Exactly. She's figured out a way not to have to pay her workers. Clever little thing, Gina. Oh, yes. Anyway, in the middle of all that, between those two stories of the two richest people in the country is a story, welfare card trial to limit booze drugs and a new plan for a totally um, virtually um, cash-free card um, which will um, which is going to be trialed but it's um, they they point out the Alan Tudge the parliamentary secretary said the significant intervention he used the word intervention interestingly didn't he would be rolled out with the government's new cashless basics card which has been trialed in Shepparton but he makes the point it's not aimed at indigenous communities but two-thirds of the participants would be indigenous um, so in between the two richest making more money uh, you've got a story where the very poorest of the poor are going to be given no money at all because they simply can't handle it. Why are they calling it a trial when they've been running this program since 2007 and it's already failed? It's a long trial. You've got to keep working until it doesn't try, it doesn't fail, which is a long time. I mean... <laughs> a long, long time. <laughs> you know, in the desert we're talking about, you know, lowered birth rates, increased rates of anemia. You know, it was just such a fail... Such a such an epic, epic fail. I mean, you know, even even I don't know if you want to listen to the people who have to use the card, but hypothetically, if you did, you know, they were saying we can't get food, mm. or or you've got to go to a specific supermarket which rips you off no end. Yeah, because they've got of you which by, there isn't one in your town because they got you by the genitals. Yes, yes. I'm going to pour and it's no, degrading. More, I'm going to top up my tea and hope people can hear this one. There we are. Good look at here. I, I'm going to go to a track now. Oh, I right, go to a track. This is um, PJ Harvey with Electric Light. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM, and that was PJ Harvey with Electric Light. Time is 9:25. And it was a very soft electric light, wasn't it? it was- <laughs> Yes. We have a bit of an announcement here. Um, Woolworths liquor distribution workers continue to strike at 40 to 58 Leaks Road in Laverton. This is an unprotected action and a community picket. There are hundreds of National Union of Workers workers striking that are calling for support for a community picket. So, comrades, if you can, please get out there. Good. 
Good. Good. Get out there. And, of course, the other one is there's the train strike next week and they're, the awful thing they're going to do, they're going to, there might be a couple of free days on public transport. I mean, the community will be absolutely revolting over that, won't they? Mm. Uh, but I'll get round to that in a second. how it should be all the time. That's right. I'll get round to that in a second because I, having mentioned Jamie Packer and, um, and Gina, <clears throat> um, someone, a, a family which is part of the original establishment who uh, were part of, if you ever read a book called The... Um, well, I can't remember what it was called now. The Land Grabbers, I think it was called. Anyway, whatever it was, that you, you learn how they made their money originally, these people. Uh, but the, the Bailey family, which is now regarded as one of the establishment families, of course, one of them even became Premier of the state and one was a federal member. Um, he got me sacked, actually. And uh, <laughs> the, he, rang, he rang Rupert in New York to... Uh, well, he got me moved, anyway, at that time. Uh, the... Anyway, the Bailey's are selling the prestigious Tongi station near Merowa in northern New South Wales for the first time in almost 100 years, showing how old the Bailey's are, doesn't it? All very old. With expectations it could fetch more than $20 million, the 4637 hectare station breeds Hereford and Merino stock, uh, managed by etc. But the, the bits I like... Um, there's been an extensive pasture renovation program with 14 kilometres of lanes as well as new internal and boundary fencing. The property features a Victorian sandstone homestead, manicured gardens, a tennis court, a separate manager's residence along with four staff cottages, that's for the slaves, and a well-maintained airstrip and hangar. Um, it dates to 1825, etc., when they, someone took it off the original owners. Um, and it was granted freehold title, etc., by Governor Burke. So it goes way back to then. It's part of the whole land grab against the indigenous people of this country. But anyway, they're going to make twenty million out of it. Isn't that wonderful? But they got their, they got the slaves' quarters. They got all those things in their own private airfield. Isn't it wonderful? Mm. The values. Anyway, on the, the other end of squatocracy. Ah, yes, yes. At the other end of that, of course, there's the workers who actually do the work. And I found it interesting, again, we've got to have an annual go at the Herald Sun, haven't we? Our weekly go at the Herald Sun. Mm. Yesterday, because as far as I know, um, they've privatised, have they not, the railway system here. Well, it's private, public, it's a bit... But, of course, when anything happens, it's, it's, it's a way in which each can blame the other. The government can say, no, it's the private company and vice versa. And the government mm. can put money into it and the that's private right. company can take, take money out of it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you put it down this chute straight into their pocket. Mm. And, uh, well, Herald Sun, big headline, train strife strikes, union set for four-hour stoppage next week. But it's not, you know, the fight... And their claim is against the company Metro. Mm. But what's the headline say? Unions v Andrews government. So it's the government to blame for the strike, ah. not the private company that uh, gets the profit. Ah, Isn't well, that good? Maybe they shouldn't have privatised it in the first place. Yeah, the other one this week, of course, was that Productivity Commission report where they recommended that penalty rates be taken away from mm. workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and which workers is that the, well, the bosses? Hospital? No, no, hosp- bosses. Bosses don't work. <laughs> God, Corey, God, oh, heavens. Anyway, the, the, the 
Kate Carnell from the uh, Chamber of Commerce or whatever, Chamber of Profits, she made an amazing statement. She, she attacked the unions for fear camp, fear mongering, because they suggested it was return to work choices. And she said, no, 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 because there's a condition that people can't be worse off. Well, that condition was also in work choices, but it didn't, didn't matter uh, in individual contracts. But it, it recommends individual contracts and get unions out of the way. And she said... Clearly, you know, everyone's better off if 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 workers can, can if they can negotiate to do away with penalty rates, as long as the workers are better off. Now, this is the question I want to ask you, Corey, because mm-hmm. if you're a student mm-hmm. and you only work Saturday Sunday because mm-hmm. you've got a student through the week and you're trying to make ends meet and you penalty well most of them don't pay penalty rates anyway but let's presume they did yeah. so and a, a, a boss says okay you got you sign this if you want work and you're trading off your penalty rates mm-hmm. now kate said as long as the worker is better off where in that is the worker better off can you explain that bit to me hmm. i think maybe like the worker gets more of a feeling of their um exploitation and you know uh, their their own position at the bottom of uh, better off as the long term revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just thinking, you know, even in relation to the capitalists who they're working for, you know, I mean, I think they're getting um, the wrong impression of their own importance. And they're trying to fix that. That's <laughs> true. That's right. <laughs> yes, and I mean, students don't need money, do they? No, they have bins to eat out of. That's right. Try to dive into, eat out of, sleep in, <laughs> all that. Okay, look, we'll take. Yeah, go on, you say I remember when I was a student. Whenever there was any sort of a luncheon on, whether or not I was invited, I always go in and grab something. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you sometime the story of when I took the rubbish back to McDonald's and the unfortunate getaway. Um, the uh, anyway, that's another story because we better go to our guest. It's nine thirty-two on one clock and nine thirty-one on the other, so it's somewhere in between all there, probably, perhaps. And um, we'll go to Daniel Spencer, who's over in Adelaide, waiting for our call. I'm sure uh, to talk to us about the government's decision on climate change. And this song is Nico with the Miner. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM or on 3cr.org.au. The time is 9.35 and that was Nico with The Miner. Rightio. And on the line now we have Daniel Spencer. Dan Spencer is a spokesperson for the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. I think I got that right, did I not? Mm-hmm. That's very good of me. And um, Dan, you're, on, you're actually in Adelaide at the moment, which means it's 9.36 here, but it must be 9.06 where you are. So you're actually half an hour behind. But I was going to suggest that half an hour behind is nothing compared to how far behind the government is in its climate change policy, or have I got it wrong? <laughs> yeah, morning, guys. Um, yeah, I think Tony Abbott's really put Australia at the back of the pack um, with a very disappointing and, quite frankly, dangerous announcement yesterday. Um, you know, Tony Abbott's really failing to protect young people and Australians from dangerous global warming when they're already starting to feel the impacts of increased ex- increasing extreme weather like bushfires. Mm. Yeah, it's very disappointing, I, I say, being a young person and, you know, having the generation before us completely fuck things up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're making choices right now that really impact our future and, you know, I think young people have got a right to be really mad at the government and, and you know, make them pay 
at the polls, but also get out and organise in the streets because, um, you know, this is our future they're talking about and they're just not delivering at all. Yeah, in fact, just this week... um I think it was the Australia, the um, or some group anyway. Oh, I was the the climate change group, whatever they call themselves. Um, that they did a study that showed that a, a vast majority of Australians want genuine and real action on climate change. So, and they have for the, years. Yeah. So the, the men in suits in the fossil fuel industry and in Parliament are, uh, are way behind in terms of even public opinion. Are they not? Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, Tony Abbott's way out of step, not only with the science, but is it out of step with the, with what the community wants. That Climate Institute poll showed that the broad community, two out of three people want a lot more done on climate change and something like over 70% of young people think um, we should be taking really strong action. Um, and that's up on previous years. So the, the mood in the community is really starting to shift and Tony Abbott's out of step. And, you know, I don't think it should come as a surprise to people. Um, since he's been elected, we've seen... Prime Minister wage a war on renewable energy, um, declared ridiculous things like uh, coal mines being good f- good for humanity, and now he's um, you know put forward these ridiculously low um, pollution reduction targets, which are just not in line with what the science says we need. I don't think the mood actually has shifted. I think that you know for at least a decade, the Australian public, in those sort of numbers, have won one really strong action on climate change. It's more a lack of uh, political will. One thing you were talking about... Yeah, Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, yeah, that, that is true. There, there has always been a strong um, mood for change in Australia. I mean, it, it, it has ebbed and flowed. Um, but I think, yeah, politics have always been way behind. And I think uh, the influence of the fossil fuel industry, especially the coal industry, over the current government is really holding them back. Mm. It's, a, it's a bit pathetic that um, Tony Abbott's also out of step with the Pope. Yeah, you'd think as a good Catholic, um, you know, the Pope coming out might have had made some difference. Um, but, you know, yesterday we saw Tony Abbott really squirming in, a, in his press conference, trying not to even commit, um, in his words, to a two-degree limit on warming, which we already know is, too, is actually uh, not a safe limit. Um, you know, the Pope's come out, the community's coming out, unions are behind it. Uh, it seems that Tony Abbott's one of the only people that's not. And indeed, um, the ALP at its conference made they made some decisions about um, being slightly stronger than the government. But the uh, the Herald Sun, I don't know about your paper in Adelaide, but the Herald Sun here in Melbourne came out this week and said it got this secret report that showed that plans to cut emissions by forty to sixty percent by twenty thirty would deliver a devastating blow to the economy, stripping six hundred billion. And it goes on in the other you you can you know where it goes from there about how awful yep. this is and we can't afford it. Uh, and sadly, the day after that, uh, the Labor Party came out and said, no, 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 that's all wrong. We haven't made up our mind about anything yet. So they're already backing off as well. Yeah, what we've seen from the Labor Party, they've, they've stepped up on renewable energy with a 50% renewable energy target, which is great, but they haven't made a commitment to what their pollution reduction target would be. Um, so we really want to see the Labor Party step out and, and put forward a target that's in line with the science. Um, those reports that it would devastate the economy are just wrong. What Australia really can't afford is having one in 100-year bushfires happening every decade. Um, what young people really can't afford is to be left with the mess of global warming. Um, and what Australia can't afford is to miss out on the clean energy jobs boom that is happening across the world, that Tony Abbott's having us miss out on, that comes with action on climate change. Acting on climate change can create good, 
long-term jobs if we act now. Mm. The 26% or, you know, the strange figure to reach actually, but anyway, the 26%. Uh, you on what years was that? Yeah, on, what, on 2005. I think they picked okay. a year with a base that makes it even worse than it looks. But, yeah, because um, um, the rest of the world's doing 1990 levels, aren't they? Yeah, whatever. Or two, I'm not sure, but I think, yeah. they, I think it varies. But, but um, Dan, what, what figure would you think we have to go for to... To, to stop reaching, if we haven't reached it yet, a tipping point? Yeah, um, well, it is hard to know, and these are our projections. The AYCC wants to see an 80% reduction on 2,000 levels um, because we want to... Our, our goal isn't to keep warming to 2 degrees. That We think that's too much. We want to try to limit warming to 1.5, which is what Pacific Islanders and other um, developing nations have called for because they know that you know they're going to be at the forefront of the impacts if we get to two degrees. Um, so, and the Climate Change Authority is recommending somewhere between forty and sixty percent, which is a lot less ambitious. Um, so that's where we're looking at in terms of where this stacks up puts us compared to the rest of the world. Um, you know, Tony Abbott and Greg Hunt have shifted the baseline. They we used to measure our targets off two thousand levels. Now it's two thousand and five. So if you put it back to what we'd previously been measuring is um, it's about 19% reduction. And this puts us, you know, behind Canada, the United States, the European Union. Um, I think it puts us ahead of Japan, and that's about it mm. um, in terms of the developed world. And they say, of course, we're going to reach our Kyoto target, but our Kyoto target was actually to increase our pollution. Yeah, it sounds like... Um, and, you know, that was a little bit before my time, but um, John Howard managed to do the dodgy there at Kyoto. Kyoto and, and, you know, we've met that target. And I think the excuse for inaction was, oh, we've got such a high polluting economy where, you know, the highest polluters per person. And now that Tony Abbott, uh, you know, a decade later or whatever it is, um, is basically using the same excuses for inaction. But we know, you know, the world is changing, the energy mix is changing, and it's not, you know, Australia's doing that too. Um, you know, in my home state, uh, the Port Augusta coal-fired power stations um, have been announced to close 15-odd years sooner than the community was told. Um, we're seeing a dramatic increase of renewable energy. Solar's becoming the new normal. Um, Tony Abbott and the coal industry can't hide behind this forever. What a responsible government would be doing would be planning a just transition for the workers in the coal-fired power stations and making a plan to shift Australia to clean energy. Um, and obviously... Uh, that seems to be too hard a task for Tony Abbott. Mm. In Victoria, we have the um, issue of Hazelwood, which is, you know, at mm. this point, a totally, you know, apparently it's the worst polluting uh, power station in the world. So congratulations, Victoria. And also totally unnecessary with reduces in demand and increases in renewable energy. Um, they could turn it off and there'd still be enough electricity in the grid. You know, I just find... I find issues like this so frustrating that they haven't done it. <laughs> I mean, I know yeah, that there's absolutely. still money coming out of Hazelwood, but uh, anyway. Yeah, it's 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 really frustrating. And, um, you know, I think it's a real head-in-the-sand approach. Like, these power stations um, are coming to the end of their natural lives, let alone if we wanted to actually act, do something about climate change. So we need to start making plans for how are we going to close these power stations, how are we going to transition these communities and do it in a way where it's not a complete 
you know, shock to the community, which um, can leave people out of work and, and create a real social dislocation. Um, we should be planning for that and, you know, trying to create the new, clean jobs of the future. Um, and Tony Abbott's just way out of step with that. I mean, the business class has never really shied away from just pulling out of communities and leaving them to rot. But, uh, yeah, it it would really be good if there could be a planned uh, succession. Exactly. And, I mean, that's I mentioned the Port Augusta Power Station earlier. Um, That's what happened with Alinta. You know, they made a decision in a boardroom a long way away from the community to close the power station far earlier than they'd told the community. Um, and the interesting thing about Port Augusta is um, the community there has actually been advocating for a renewable energy transition for the last couple of years. And so there's been a lot of time for the government to get ahead of this closure and actually put in place and work with the community to put in place a transition. Now, that hasn't happened, and I know the community, because I've been working with them, have, have are continuing to push for that transition, and they might get, get some things to happen. But I think that's a real lesson for Victoria um, in how we approach coal closure um, that's going to come naturally anyway in places like the Latrobe Valley. Mm. One, one argument is that, we, as we said earlier, we're the highest per capita polluter in the world, but uh, the, those who propose continuing our pollution say, but we're on a world scale, we're so small, whatever we do won't really matter. Um, but, but in terms of our carbon footprint, I, I would have thought that all that coal that we're exporting um, to Asia, etc., should count as part of Australia's footprint, or am I being stupid there? Yeah, I think that's something. It's um, you know pretty ridiculous that the coal that we mine here doesn't equal um, equate in our emissions. Um, you know, and Australia thinks, oh, if we just remu- reduce our emissions at home, we can just keep exporting coal to the world. Mm. We know that's not true. Um, you know, Australia should be thinking about how can we export clean energy to the world? How can we get ahead of these technologies, um, you know, refire up our manufacturing base? Um, you know, how can we export clean energy to the world? Um, because, you know, wherever it's burnt, carbon and coal has, a, has an impact. So whether the coal is burnt in Australia or it's burnt in China, um, you know, Australia is going to feel the impact. People in China are going to feel the impact. People all over the world are going to feel the impact. Which brings us to the federal court decision last week, which said that the uh, the Adani mine couldn't go ahead at the moment because of a, a skink and a snake, which was interesting. But um, that was brought by the Macquarie uh, by, the, by the Mackay Conservation Group. Uh, but the the government uh, immediately, the minister Greg Hunt. Um, slammed environmental groups for abusing the legal system, he said. And uh, it struck me that that was an interesting comment to make. Jeff seemed to miss the point completely that they won the case on a legal ground. Uh, how can you abuse the exactly. legal system if you go to court and actually win? Yeah, it's it's really, really, really worrying, um, the rhetoric coming from the government. They seem to be wanting to put coal miners um, and the big coal industry above the law. Um, you know, what the Mackay Conservation Group did was they saw that um, Greg Hunt had failed to take into account some of the serious impacts of this mine, um, and so they brought that to the court, and the court found that they were correct. So for Greg Hunt and Tony Abbott um, and, the, and the big mining industry to come out and slam this as a misuse of the court is ridiculous. They're not above the law. They should, if they want to operate in Australia, they need, a, they need to you know, obey the law.
Except, of course, the uh, the industry has come out subsequently and said the government should change the law so that conservation groups can't go to court and win this sort of case to lock them out mm. of the legal system effectively. Yeah, and you know that's I don't, that's not a surprise to me that the um, you know the big coal miners think that they're uh, you know that they can do what they want and can shut the community out. Um, you know the mine we're talking about right now um, that's going to be that's not consented to by the traditional owners, the Wangkan and Jagalingu people. Um, it's going to be dug and exported through our Great Barrier Reef and then burnt in India. Um, it's going to have huge impacts, not just on our, on our reef, but on our climate and also on the traditional owners where the mine is posed. So it's really a mine that shouldn't be going ahead. Um, the economics of it don't stack up. It doesn't stack up in the courts. Um, now, what we're going to see is is the government going to start looking after their big coal mates um, by trying to change laws, by attacking environment groups? Um... Hello. We've lost you, Dan. Sorry, what did you say? Dan, sorry, you dropped out then. Can you move around or something and just, we're losing you. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Um, I was just going to say, are we going to see the, you know, the, the coalition government stick up for their friends in the mining industry, the coal mining industry? Um, or, or are they going to see that um, you know the community deserves to have a say, and that this mine isn't in the community's interest? Mm. I thought of um, a possible solution, given that coal mining doesn't make sense economically, socially, environmentally, but obviously seems really important to some people. Why don't we create like a, a computer game that they could play for the rest of their lives, where they can pretend? To be coal miners, powered by renewable energy, of course. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and um, I think that that sounds great. I'd be yep. happy to pay them to do it, <laughs> as long as they're not actually mining. I mean, you know, it must. If we can distract Tony Abbott with that and get on with the job of building a clean economy, great. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Um, what do you think the way forward is? Look, I think we've been talking about how the community is really behind um, action on climate change. Um, I think the way forward is, um, you know, people getting involved in their communities and, and running campaigns. You know, we've got the opportunity to mobilise before the Paris Climate Talks at the end of the year. There's really powerful campaigns being run across the country to try and stop these coal mines on the Great Barrier Reef. And then we've got the election. And, you know, we need we know we need to be out there advocating um, for all parties to be taking a strong position to the election and, um, you know, not voting for people who don't put our future first. So I, th- I think, um, you know, people getting out and campaigning and, and getting organised is, is where the solution's going to come because we've been waiting too long for politicians to do it for us. Gee, the, um, I hope you're not talking about what the Print Review was talking about. The day after that decision on Adani, the Financial Review had an editorial with, I won't read on because you know what it would say, but the headline was, Echo Activism, a Huge Cost to Community. Do, do you feel that you're a cost to the community, Dan? Look, I think um, we're a benefit to the community and, you know, we're not separate from the community. We're part of the community and um, communities have the, have the right to stand up for themselves. And, uh, you know, as a, as a representative of a youth organisation, um, the decisions these people are making, are, we're going to have to grow up with the consequences of. Mm. Um, so young people have, more, have, a, have a, you know, a right to be standing up and advocating for ourselves. Yeah, you and Corey are both of the generation that's going to have to live with all these decisions. And I, I always ask people in this situation, do, do you feel angry at the fact that these blokes in suits are doing this to you? 
like either of you could high mention that if you want. Yeah, I don't know what Corey reckons, but I do for sure. I'm livid. Yeah, kind of. I can understand. <laughs> like I'm livid, and I'm on an agent. I'm not actually gonna. Probably not going to suffer the consequences any nearly as much as you people are. Yeah. I mean, you know, given the beautiful earth that we inherited, to destroy this thing for future generations, it's just, it's just abysmal. Mm. Mm, exactly. Yeah, and just on the other side of that, by the way, and New Zealand's government is, you know, as conservative as ours, and yet I know they've got other, they've got benefits in this area, but nonetheless, they're moving toward a ninety percent renewable target within about three or four years. They're hoping for. Um, it's pretty amazing, and in fact, their yeah. last coal mines, they reckon, their last uh, coal-fired stations are going to be closed down by twenty eighteen. Yeah, it's um, you know, I think it it just is another demonstration of how out of touch um, Tony Abbott is with the rest of the world. Um, conservative governments in New Zealand, in the UK, uh, you know, taking action on this issue. It's not a um, it's not a right a traditional right left issue, um, although how we might, how we might act on it maybe is. But um, you know, Tony Abbott's out of touch with the world, out out of touch with the community, and most importantly, he's out of touch with the science. Mm. A lot of this is hydroelectric and some of that does it does impact on rivers and things but there's also geothermal over there and they're using they're also yeah. using solar and wind but nonetheless yeah. an interesting figure arising out of that was that um, in, uh, that Australia's coal-fired power supplied about 70 percent of electricity requirements but from uh, in July 2015, that was the figure, with coal now accounting for 76.3%. So it's gone up in the in the period since 2005, our reliance on coal, when we should be cutting back. Yeah, and that's, um, and that's happened since the government um, repealed the price on pollution because there's nothing stopping big polluters from emitting more pollution right now. And so we've seen um, renewable energy use... Um, decreased slightly because of the government's war on renewable energy. We've seen the brown coal um, use and black coal use go up, um, which is, you know, crazy. Mm. Running out of time, Dan, but you've got a final question, Corey? No, that's no. it. I was gonna, well, I was going to finish up by saying, Dan, um, I assume, though, uh, having made that point about the generation, that you'll continue to fight the old bastards and um, hopefully knock them off. <laughs> thanks, yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Okay, that was... Uh, that was Thanks, Dan. Yeah, that was Daniel Spencer. He's with the um, Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And uh, as we say, that they're the people who are... Uh, the decisions are going to impact, and uh, of course, Abbott, Abbott, and the people in the boardrooms of the of the fossil fuel coal companies and mining companies don't give us stuff when they make their decisions. Hmm. So you've been listening to City Limits cheering you up. <laughs> no end. No. Well, well, cheer up, but in another minute or so, Corey, you did say yesterday you think we have reached the tipping point stage. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that a bit or in about a minute? You've got a minute to, just, to tell us about the end of the world? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really sorry, but could I elaborate on that on another yes, okay, day when right. I have um, a bunch more figures in front of me? All right, all right. You're most welcome to. I don't want to blab on about science without any science in front of me. No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's you, just a blab. You sound, you sound like a possible candidate to run the CSIRO. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're right up there. <laughs> All right, we're going to fade out. We're going to go away. Next week is uh, is housing, isn't it? Yes. And we've got 
another interview lined up for the first half of that show, but I can't think what. Can you remember what it is? There's something else we've got lined up for the first half. But anyway, we've got housing and... Uh, oh, I know, we're going to talk about an issue to do with the uh, golf club out at, um, mm. out at Dingley and all sorts of things going on which could lead to future planning issues out there. Mm. That's right, so it's, we're going to be waving golf clubs next week. Can we say goodbye? Uh, goodbye. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Uh, this is City Limits on 3CR at 55am, 3cr.org.au, and we're going to take you out with Sia with Electric Bird. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au dot org dot au